Welcome to Windswept and Interesting. I'm Richard Baines, and this Wednesday we're getting down to earth, or rock bottom, with one of Scotland's leading proponents of geology. The country can lay claim to being the cradle of modern geology, with Scottish 18th century scientist James Hutton credited with founding the science. But does it get the attention it deserves? Today's guest would say no, although she's doing her damnedest to change that. Eileen Tisdall is a senior lecturer in environmental geography at the University of Stirling and a trustee of the recently formed Scottish Geology Trust. But much more than that, she's one of the most enthusiastic scientists that you could meet. It's another indoor tape today as the Scottish weather has once again been a bit unkind. I visited Eileen at her home in West Stirlingshire and in her cosy sitting room I asked her about the risk of a new ice age, why our rocks are at risk and what we can do to protect them and why it's important to encourage women scientists. First of all she told me a bit about how she became a geologist. So I suppose I need to blame my mother for getting me interested in all things physical geography and geology because she was a geography teacher. So whenever we'd go on holiday or trips out she'd always talk about the mountains why the landscape where there was the way it was and that's where it all came from and I really enjoyed geography at school and physical geography in particular and I was never taught geology but I kind of thought well, that's what I'd be quite interested in studying and so that's what I chose to study and I I didn't want to stay in Northern Ireland so I, I wanted to go to Scotland and so it wasn't, it wasn't the easiest time to be in Northern Ireland it wasn't and it it was it was sort of the early 90s late 80s and things were not great and I just thought there must be somewhere else to live and work and that's what I thought I would do but it sounds like um like me being taken out into the countryside by your folks was yeah. quite a big part of yeah. Of life. Yeah, and I and I grew up in Fermanagh, which is in the west, has amazing mountains and amazing, you know, limestone landscapes, caves, all that sort of thing. So I that's what I did as you know, as hobbies, as mountaineering and caving. Oh right, and that's okay. That's what I really enjoyed doing. And so it was always there in the background, this kind of sort of gentle knowledge of, you know, my where I lived and, and you know, the rocks and landscape and people and things it, like it that. It is interesting because climbing and, and caving you, you really do start to relate. You learn, you have to learn about what, what rock is like yes. because you learn that some rock is good for climbing, some rock is mm-hmm. bad for it and all that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. and then yeah. caving was all about, you know, there'd be different fossils in the rocks, there'd be different limestone formations, you know, there'd be different processes. The caves would be different because of the way they'd been formed, things like that. And all of that, you just kind of build up the sort of background knowledge of, of, of rocks and processes. Yeah, yeah. Right, so you went to Edinburgh to study geology. I did, yes. Um, were there a lot of lasses on the course? No, there weren't. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a group of us and um, we kind of stuck together. And uh, when you did geology, you were in King's Buildings. And so we all had to go out to King's Buildings to do our geology. And then a lot of us chose to do some arts and humanities subjects. I chose to do as much geography as I could. So then I'd be back in the sort of you know the city itself so to speak so we tried to get the boast beth of boast both worlds when we were there the so of, the best of both the worlds. best of both worlds so <laughs> that we weren't always just stuck out in king's buildings right 
Right. And did it feel unusual to be a woman doing that? Was was it was it something that was um, remarked on or that, that, that you noticed that there was a difference? Um, what was unusual was, and I never really noticed this until later on, was we had no female geology lecturers. It was all male lecturers. And it was only when you got into the geography department that you got one or two female lecturers but none in the in the geological because geography is regarded as a bit softer well possibly and then also we there was some human geography and that's definitely tends to be um, a mixture of both men and women but but geology no definitely it, it's crazy i've never heard of another female geology mm. teacher my brother's a geologist as you know and i've never yeah. heard him mention any other women no but it, it just it just never occurred to me it never occurred to me that that you, i should expect to see a female lecturer in my in my subject that I was studying I just never and then and then as I say there was about four or five of us in the class that were women and we just accepted that that's what it was we never challenged it that much we just accepted that there weren't that many of us and we all stuck together and do you think it's important now to be uh, I mean, I'm sure the, the balance it hasn't redressed itself. It isn't fifty-fifty by no, any stretch of imagination. No, it's not. So, is it important now that you're there and showing other young women that they can that they can do these things? I think so, and I also think it's you know geology is um, a discipline that traditionally involved a lot of field work and a lot of time away in your field work, and that was the expectation was that if you became a geologist, you would have to spend a lot of time in the field. And I think for many women, that's what maybe stopped them pursuing their careers any longer than university. But the subjects changed quite considerably now. And so there's less emphasis now on field work, although it's still a core part of your, your training. But, but now you can be a geologist and use remote sensing, for example. You, you don't necessarily have to spend months and months collecting field data, which is what it was like when I first graduated. I mean, there's also a connection with the oil industry and mining and yeah, things like very that, much so. which are quite male-dominated. Yes, fields, yes. Yeah. So for my, uh, like my degree, that's what we were being trained to do. We were being trained to work in either the oil industry or the mining industry. And there was very little other kind of career discussion either side of this those kind of careers um and i realized at the end of my degree that i didn't want to go into either of those you didn't want to be a muddlogger or a... no definitely not and then again that was you know if you went to do that if you went to go into petroleum geology that's what you had to do you had to go in the rigs mm-hmm. for that amount of time mm-hmm. before you could then allow to become a, a, an actual you know to work with the seismologist or do the you know the the kind of deciding where to drill. You had to have that groundwork training on the rigs. And that's really not what most of us were interested in doing. And so most of the the sort of women in my year, some of them went on to be geologists, but they were mining geologists. They weren't petroleum geologists. Or they went into very different careers, really different careers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Apart from mining and the oil industry, where else other than teaching can you go with with geology well some people used their degree just as a degree and got into graduate programs and you know Mm -hmm. finance or whatever they just used it as a degree um some went on so i went on to do a master's in environmental sciences Mm -hmm. and that was basically so i become i wanted to become an environmental consultant and quite a lot of that work required you to have a kind of understanding of bedrock geology um, 
Um, another colleague, she went on to be an environmental officer for BP. That's what she went on right. to do. So she trained with them, but she did. So her understanding of geology was important for that role. Right. So there's lots of stuff out there, and that's part of what we wanted to talk about today, which mm. is the relevance of geology to whole swathes of our lives. Yes. yes yeah. And how yes. it actually underpins yeah. a, a lot of what 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 we do. So one of the things we wanted to talk about is the local landscape here. Mm-hmm. And earlier on, I was mentioning that I was on the Duncan Farm at Drimmen. Yes. The Duncan Family Farms spread at Drimmen. And Bruce there immediately said, oh, well, we're on these moraines. And he described how it all... I mean, it's really interesting how this immediate area, we're in West Stirlingshire, I mm. suppose, southwest Stirlingshire, west mm. of Stirling. West, yeah. Um, where, where I live as, as, as well as you. There's there's some amazing geology here, mm. isn't there? Yeah, and, and all... So lots of amazing geology and amazing fossil finds as well that you that you would just never consider being in your in your local area. And and then we have the, the glacial story as well, the glacial geomorphology. Uh-huh. We've also got the, the Highland Boundary Fault. Yes, yes. Which is kind of part of that as this well. This great suture line that's so obvious when you look at any map of Scotland and you can trace it. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's really easy to see. You don't have to get down your hands and knees. The Highland Boundary Fault runs from Stonehaven all the way through then cuts through uh, Loch Lomond and that's where you really get to see it because you see it as the islands in Loch Lomond. Yeah, and then it runs down out through along the Clyde and... Yeah, and out then across... Arran and, yes. and all that. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. 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 But the glacial stuff is probably, for me, one of the most fascinating things. The Lomond re-advance yes. is, I think, the correct term for it. It is. What happened? So, um, about, I suppose it's about... 14,000 years ago, the last ice sheet starts to fall apart. So these are the big ice sheets that are sitting across northern Europe, across North America, and they all start to melt and fall apart. And so there's this quite rapid warming occurs and all these ice sheets start to melt and disappear. And that's kind of what's been that happened, you know, in the last end of the last ice age. And this is what was expected to happen at the end of this ice age. And then um, there's a sudden return of ice. Um, to large parts of Scotland and then the, some of the ice starts re-advance in, in North America and then across Scandinavia as well. So there's a sudden return to very cold conditions and part of that is to do with what's happening in the North Atlantic. So the North Atlantic cools very quickly and the heat that normally comes up from the Gulf of Mexico doesn't get far enough northwards and so you get this very cold conditions but also wet to allow the ice to build up in these big snowfields. So that's what happens. And that's why you mostly see evidence of the ice in Western Scotland. So we know Western Scotland's really wet now because it gets all that moisture. So if you think of all that moisture and then it's suddenly getting much colder. And it's falling as snow. And it falls as snow and it doesn't melt. It stays year on year on year. And then you start to get this accumulation of ice. So Rannoch Moor is the birthplace of the ice because it's a sort of basin, high basin, surrounded by these peaks, and they just hold the snow and collect the snow, and then these ice sheets start to form and spread across most of western Scotland. And one of these sort of lobes of ice comes down Loch Lomond. And other lobes, so one comes down to Lake of Menteith, one comes down through Callander, and they try to get as far south as, as they can. But then they're met with warming, and then they're, they'd only exist for maybe a thousand years, maybe less. And then the warming returns, the North Atlantic circulation kicks back in. The warming returns and then these all this ice melts again. What caused the North Atlantic to 
cooled down? Well, there's a bit of discussion and it seems to be to do with a big release of meltwater from North America. And that fresh meltwater just floods in across the North Atlantic. It's catastrophic. It's instantaneous. There's a big release of um, ice melt um, in a big lake and the lake bursts its dam and releases out into the North Atlantic. And that difference between all that fresh water coming in on the surface means that um, the salinity changes in the North Atlantic and that, that warm water can't travel northwards because the cold water can't sink southwards. And so there's this little thousand year kind of pause in the warming and then that causes the cooling then to return to Western Scotland. So I'm thinking hmm, Greenland is slowly slipping into the sea. Yes, yes, yes. Is it beyond the wildest speculation that something similar could happen again? No, there's much discussion about, you know, would it be that if Greenland melted in a similar kind of catastrophic way, would that put enough fresh water into the North Atlantic? Would that disturb the North Atlantic circulation pattern? So, yes, very much an area of discussion about, you know, you see that happening in the past. So would that, can you build a similar scenario or, or can you learn from what you've seen in the past? To work out what would happen then, in if you if you get that similar kind of melting and rate of melting in Greenland. So glaciers in Scotland again. <laughs> I wonder if we're maybe too warm. If global warming has gone too far, and we're we're not, we're we're it's warmed too much to allow that to happen again. But the skiing might get better. Who knows? Who knows? Or it'll just get really really wet. I don't know. <laughs> really really even more wet. Even wetter than it is now. Yes. But the effects of that advance, you can see it all round here. Uh, even in the campsites, isn't, isn't it the Corrie of Balglass? There's yes. an actual glacial feature. Well, that's if you go up and you look down into the Corrie, then you, you can have a go at thinking for yourself, is that really a little cirque moraine? Is that really there? Uh-huh. You can have that discussion amongst yourselves. Oh, it's not, not, not cut and dried. <laughs> not then. cut and dried. Well, none of it is, actually. No. Even the, the re-advance that we have in Loch Lomond, a calendar, none of them are cut and dried. It's really interesting. But there, there are very, very clear features from that era. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've walked along one. We've walked along an esker, and you explained to me what an yes, esker yes. is. Yes, It is an esker. And it is an esker. Yes. It's clearly a glacial thing. Yes. And, it, and it pretty definitely dates from that time. Perhaps. Right. Or it could be yeah. earlier. Right. So uh, currently in Stirling University, we've got a PhD student and that's her research question. She's asking, you know, about these features, about mapping these features and thinking, when did they happen? Because the assumption has always been that they are Loch Lomond re-advance features, uh-huh. but they may not be. They may be an earlier re-advance in that ice sheet. You're listening to the Windswept and Interesting podcast. So what glacial treasure can you find behind a council estate in Stirlingshire? Why are such solid features of the landscape at risk? How can you help to save them? And how did the Ice Age help to build the second fourth road bridge? Keep listening to find out. We'll be back in one minute. And just talking about an esker there. You've got a very clear explanation of how an esker yes. works. And I never knew this until you told me. Tell me what a tell me what an esker is. So this is the esker and calendar and it's beautiful. It's an it absolute is. beautiful esker. <laughs> and it's easy to get to and you can walk along it and and it's really lovely. And it's behind you, a row of council houses. It is, yes. Yeah. You sort of look onto people's gardens, but but it's beautiful. And you, you, you walk along it and you notice as you walk along it, it's not straight. 
it's really wiggly it's kind of weaves its way round and but all the time as you walk along it you know that the river teeth is quite close to you mm -hmm. so you get the sense that as you're walking along you're you're moving with water you're flowing in the same direction and it's, it's a raised and it's raised, raised and it's steep on either side and you walk along the crest of the ridge and what you're walking along is the bed of a river that had formed underneath the ice. So the ice is melting really quickly and all the meltwater has to go somewhere. So it finds a route right at the bottom of the of the ice, the tongue of ice. And all this meltwater brings all of the sediment that it's got with it and it moves it and transports it along. But because it's trapped in a sort of tunnel underneath the ice, it can't spread outwards as much as it wants to. And it's sort of the velocity of the water kind of erodes it upwards. And it brings all that bed load material still with it. And then when the ice melts, you get that kind of nice crest shape because you lose that supporting ice around it. And it all so it's slumps. built up. It's in built the bed up. Of the it's tree. in the bed of the glacier. Yeah. So That's you see these actively forming in Iceland, for example. So you get all that melt water coming out. But the one in Calendar is enormous compared to the ones in Iceland. And so it must have been an incredible amount of meltwater, a really active kind of meltwater system bringing all that material underneath the bed of the ice. Now, that area's got a lot of other interesting geomorph yes, yes. and also you know, locally to here, just north here, here and near towards Drimmen, yep. you've got all those um, moraines and that kind yep. of thing. Um, but this kind of heritage is at risk. It is, and it's at risk because of the material that it's made up of so a lot of the eskers because they're made up of these nice gravels for example they're highly prized as aggregate and um so they're at risk of sort of um mining and quarrying and then also many of these kind of features they're on farmland and and so you know the, the farmers themselves may see them as inconvenient although a lot of them are very large so it would take real effort to move some of them but but you want people to recognise, you know, what they are. And lots of lots of landowners do recognise what they have and are very proud of what they have and the story that it tells them about where they live and, and the sort of legacy that they have. So they'll see it in their soils, the differences in their soil types. They'll see that, yeah. And it will dictate to a certain extent what their activities. Yes, yes. Because some of them are, you know, some of these features are very steep. They're very hilly. You know, you can graze on them, but you might not be able to ply them. You know, things like that. They'll yeah. know. They'll know what yeah. they're. So yeah. the Duncans tell me that um, in the in in wet weather they can move their animals onto the moraines, mm -hmm. which are better drained and That's right. good grazing, and yes. they're not getting bogged down. Yes. Yeah. So interestingly, the moraines that come from the Loch Lomond Readvance tend to be very gravelly. They they don't tend to be full of clay and which is what you would normally expect from a glacial type till. So they're quite unusual. So that's why they see them as free draining, and that's why in Calendar, the moraines have been actively quarried because they're made of these sort of more gravelly type materials. Yeah, so can, they're a little can, bit unusual. You can buy Calendar Calendar gravel. It's beautiful <laughs> stuff. I was going to buy. Some, I was going to buy some from my garden, and then I thought, no, Eileen wouldn't no, like that if no, I bought that. See, yeah, no, you don't need to do that. <laughs> But most most of the gravel, you know, from Calendar, it went to build, build the Queen's Crossing, you right. know, across the Forth. So, so these are, you know, things that this country needs economically. They need these resources, but it it, it we need to think about them a little bit more carefully, mm -hmm. and what it means to 
you know, remove them. And then as we remove them, we need to maybe record them better. So survey them, record the stratigraphy, that sort of thing. And then, and sometimes that isn't what happens. Yeah. And, and you wrote a paper yourself and a, and a colleague that was somewhat critical of the efforts of Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park yes. to preserve and record these features. Yes. It's not being done enough. I don't think so. And um, I think, I mean, myself and Angus, we wrote the paper because of the experiences that we'd had. So it's quite a, it was quite an interesting paper to write because it was kind of personal, very personal reflection on, you know, what we'd been through, the things that we tried to achieve and how, as, you know, earth scientists, we tried to convince the park of the importance of these features. And, and we found it exceptionally difficult to convince an authority like the National Park of the importance of these features. And that to us was really difficult because our expectations were that, that, that they would welcome this, that they would be really enthusiastic about having these features, these incredible landforms within their park. Mm. And, and we just couldn't make any headway at all. And so I think we wrote the paper out of just wanting other people to know that this is what we'd kind of had to work our way through to get some level of recognition. And now the site does have a good level of recognition, but it took an enormous amount of work by myself and Angus and then really, you know, good people in calendar who wanted these features to be recognised. And it was and and then other academics as well. But it you know, it shouldn't have taken the work of all of these people to get those features recognised. And this could be happening elsewhere in the country. It, well, it is. It is, absolutely. National park area, is. all sorts of places. It is, yeah. because yeah. people, I think, are quite quick to recognise, you know, biodiversity, squirrels, you know, <laughs> the things that people like. Cuddly but, stuff. Cuddly stuff, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. a nice plant, for example, yeah. pretty. Yeah. Orchids. Yeah, orchids. Those, yeah. But, but people don't really think that rocks and piles of gravel are that interesting well, but they or... should be, if, you, if you if you led moraine tours esca tours <laughs> so your enthusiasm would rub up rub, rub off with, uh, that 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 esca is seared into my mind it's it's a beauty it's and, absolute beauty yeah. but i think what's amazing about it is you you don't have to go halfway up a mountain to see it it's right. just in calendar it, it's and it's behind the council houses behind as you come into calendar from the south it's behind those council yeah, houses. Yeah, Roman so camp esker. Go and look. Absolutely, it's, it's straightforward, yeah. You, now know. you mentioned Angus there, that's Angus... That's Angus Miller. Who is... So he is the secretary of the Scottish Geology Trust. And he and I met because he was keen to set up uh, an organisation, an umbrella organisation, that would bring together sort of people who are interested in Scottish geology, but also the, the, the Scottish geology kind of... Um, groups as well so the the sort of you know glasgow geological association edinburgh those sorts of groups but there didn't seem to be any kind of single representative for scottish geology in the scottish geology trust and we've just launched a a new initiative to um engage because there's lots of people out there that are really interested in their local geology and so this is to try and work out where these sites are that are are, that people feel are important so some of them will be registered so some of them will be listed as geological conservation review sites so they'll be on a list somewhere but not all of them will be and so this is just an initiative 
for people to go out and visit their local sites and record them and then monitor them in terms of how good is the accessibility, what condition are they in. And so that'll build up a really nice database to help us understand what kind of sites we have and how you know visible are they and then what condition are they in because this is the bit we don't know. So many of these sites are listed but we have no idea what state they're in. And um, so we need to know that if we're going to start thinking about maintaining these sites, making sure that these sites, so things like, are they overgrown? Are they easy to get to? Can you see the geology? So many of these sites will be described, but if you can't see what you're meant to be looking at, then you're not going to be interested. Mm. It's going to be pointless for you to visit. So those sorts of things. And that this is relying on our volunteers, on our members of the Scottish Geology Trust. And this is a long tradition in geology. Lots and lots of geology has been done through the contributions of interested amateurs. Citizen science. Well, it's rebranded as citizen science, but it's been going on for, <laughs> for at least a century of yeah. just people, local people being interested in the rocks and fossils that they have and volunteering that information on their time. Yeah, so it could make a difference. Absolutely, it will make a difference and it'll... It'll be a real step change for where we are in terms of geodiversity, where we are in terms of knowing where the sites are and then knowing what condition they're in. And we've got fantastic geology. We've got, let me think, the Moyne Thrust, all this stuff that was yes. in the in the beginning of geology. We sort of invented it here to a certain Yes, extent. and Sicker Point. We have Sicker Point. I don't know Sicker Point. Oh, Sicker Point is where you have James Hutton thinking about geological time and working it out and thinking about why do we have these kind of rocks that we have and he's trying to fit everything into a biblical time scale and it won't work for him. It won't. And so Sicker Point is one of those places where he realises that you have to have this infinite amount of time to make the rocks form, tilt upright, erode, new rocks layered on top. Where is Sicker Point? Sicker Point is just south of on the east coast of Scotland. And it's just actually been um, listed as one of the key uh, global geological sites. Just south of? I think it's south of Dunbar. Right, oh, near Dunbar, right, on, yes. that, on that Lothian coast. Yes, yeah. yes. So if you go on the train, you go past it. All right, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fantastic. Now, this organisation is like an um, umbrella organisation, which is seeking to protect educate and enhance about geology and Scottish geology Scottish yes, geology yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 and that's kind of quite quite necessary you see you think yes it is and um it was just to be a kind of voice for Scottish geology so in and around the geoparks for example so Scotland's incredibly lucky to have amazing geoparks and they're struggling slightly with you know how to function effectively um, and we felt that they needed, a, you know, an organisation that would support them and get behind them. And then also just to just raise awareness of Scottish geology and just get more people interested in Scottish geology and geology in general. And just simple things like the, you know, the we have a Scottish geology festival that runs every year and we just run events. Is, is that a rock festival, Ali? No. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, no, yes. 
But um, we do all sorts of things. There's talks online, in person, and then we do beach pebble events. People can just come, uh-huh. look at, collect beach pebbles. People tell you what they are. Yeah. That sort of thing. I collect beach pebbles. Everybody yeah. should collect beach pebbles. They're great, aren't I they? I know. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's just little things like that just to get people interested and just a little bit of knowledge about what their pebbles are and what they mean, where they've come from, the story that they can tell, that sort of thing. You, you teach geology and geomorphology and these subjects yes. at Stirling University. Yes. How important is it to you that you're doing that and how important is it to, to use that to get the message across? Well, the the geology that I teach with a, 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 our colleagues are is an introduction to geology, so it's not scary. Uh-huh. It's just very kind of getting people interested and getting people thinking about geology, not necessarily turning them into geologists, um, just to give them that really nice background so that when they, they move on in their careers through their degree programmes, they bring that with them. So they bring that with them to when they start thinking about things like water and where the water comes from, water quality and things, and soils and soil development. And then also when they move on to think about um, environmental hazards, so flooding and um, earthquakes and landslides and things like that. So they have that nice background that they bring with them then throughout their their degree program and that can feed into human geography and social science yes and all sorts yeah of definitely yeah. so we we think about things like geological resources we think about things like you know oil and gas and fracking and where that leads in terms of energy and security of energy supply and then we also talk about you know where the minerals come from for your phone and you know broaden it out and get them to think about you know, all of these things that we have, there will be geological resources involved in lots of the objects that we need for our, you know, society today. And a greater awareness of that is what we want. Yes, and it's important because we have to have difficult conversations, we have to have a broad view, and we have a, an energy transition that's going to be needed. So we need to understand lots of people's different perspectives, and the geology is one perspective. So you're out there telling them all about it? Yeah, and my aim is to ruin every walk on every holiday that they go on because they will have to look when they go. And they'll be banging, <laughs> they'll be banging onto their friends about rock. They will, yes, absolutely. It doesn't really ruin it, does it? It's it's oh. it's good fun. I, I do it. I talk to people about good. geology, the little good. smattering of geology I have. You know. Good. Well, it's just I just I think when they when they most students when they finish they 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 do have a different awareness and a different view of the landscape and that's what I'm after. Thanks for listening and remember you can make suggestions or give me criticisms on Twitter or X as it's known now. My handle there is at Scott Nature Core.